So, yeah, tonight, um, wow, what a topic has been handed to us. It's the sovereignty of God. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you'd no doubt have heard that phrase, the sovereignty of God. And yet it is a subject so vast, so high, so deep, so wide, so long that it's like trying to get our arms around the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I really ought to be doing an entire series on the sovereignty of God, and even at that, we would only scratch the surface. So I have limited time tonight, but what I have uh, in many ways will be the heart of the flay. It'll be the center cut. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 103 and verse 19. And I want us to use this verse as really our launching point for the sovereignty of God. And if I put a subtitle on this, it would be what it means and why it matters. The sovereignty of God, what it means and why it matters. There's one verse in particular that I want to to read for you. And I remember the time R.C. Sproul asked me to stand in his pulpit and to preach on the sovereignty of God. And he assigned me this text, so it it is a a great verse. So let's just read this one verse. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. In this one verse, we read about the foundational truth of really the Christian faith. The foundational truth of of all Christian theology, and it is the sovereignty of God over all things. This is the bedrock doctrine by which God governs all that He has made. So God has not created everything out of nothing and then walked away from it for it to run its own course. Uh, the deists, back at the time our country was founded. Um, believed that God had created the universe, but that his hand was not on the throttle and he was a mere spectator of what was taking place. Um, They they used the illustration of the proverbial watchmaker, that God is, uh, in essence, like a watchmaker, has, has built the watch, but then has wound it up, but then walked away from it for it to run on its own. But nothing could be further from the truth. Not only has God created all that there is, but God governs and presides over all that there is. So this really refers to his undisputed throne rights to preside over all of his creation. Uh, This extends over all planets and all peoples. It extends over all events and all outcomes. It extends over all good and evil. It extends over prosperity and adversity. There is nothing that is not under the purview of the sovereignty of God. It simply means that God is God, not merely in name only, but in all that is implied in the name God. It means that God always does as he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, with whom he pleases, however he pleases. There's no such thing as good luck. 
bad luck. Those are mere religious superstitions, uh, fictitious philosophies that have no basis on reality whatsoever. Uh, they're, they're, good luck and bad luck do not even exist. Uh, the stars are not controlling anything here on this planet. Uh, blind fate does not exist. There are no accidents. There, there, are, there is no happenstance. There is no, no such thing as chance. The only thing that there is is God and the sovereignty of God over all things. Now, still by way of introduction, there are two key words that I want to set in front of you, and I think these will be a key that will help unlock an understanding of our subject tonight. The first word is decree, God's eternal decree. It's a theological term that you may not be familiar with, but God's eternal decree means that God has one master plan from all eternity past that includes everything that comes to pass. It includes Adam's sin. It includes Satan's fall. It includes the fall of a third of the angels to become demon spirits. Uh, It includes the rebellion of the human race against God. It includes the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It includes the eternal destinies of every person in this room. That has all been foreordained by God before time began. Just some words that will help you understand this one master plan of God. It's eternal, meaning it was God is the architect and the author of this eternal decree. From before time began, God's not making this up as he goes. It is all-inclusive. It includes everything that comes to pass. Uh, the number of hairs upon your head, uh, a sparrow that falls from a tree, um, every little small detail of everything that comes to pass is included in this master plan. When in history you would be born, what your gender would be, the day of your death, the number of days that you have to live here upon the earth, even where you're sitting tonight. Every detail of everything that comes to pass was included in this master plan. There are no gaps waiting to be filled in. It is all wise, meaning God in his infinite genius and his stunning brilliance, which far exceeds any one of us, has purposed this eternal plan in such a way that it brings about the greater good. It is immutable, meaning this master plan, this eternal decree, is, it's, it's fixed, it's, it's set in stone, it's unalterable, it is immutable, it is irrevocable. There is no plan B. There is no plan C. There is only one plan and one purpose from all eternity past, and that is God's eternal decree. 
It is very complex. It involves not only the macro, but also the micro. It includes not only the big picture that involves nations and rulers and, and, and judges, but it also includes the, the micro as well, every small detail that will come to pass. And as R.C. Sproul has said, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. Everything has its appointed place. That is God's eternal decree. In Ephesians 1 verse 11, it's referred to as the counsel of his will. He will bring about the counsel of his will in all things. And in Romans 8 verse 28, you know that verse, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That's his eternal master plan. So that's the first thing you need to know, that God has prescripted and predetermined and foreordained everything. Now, the second key word you need to know is providence. And providence is God moment by moment bringing to pass his eternal plan. It is God as the administrator of his decree. God is the executor of his decree. As he sits upon his throne every moment of every day, God is moving history forward, and history is his story. So God is upon his throne, and he is active every moment of every day, and he is ruling, and he is overruling. And we need to understand that God has a different relationship to the different things that come to pass. I want to make this very simple. God causes many things to happen. God actively works in the hearts and in the minds and in the wills and in the events and in the occurrences and in the weather of, of this world, and God actively, with his invisible hand, causes many things. The second thing you need to know is that God allows other things. God allows sin. God allows the devil to roam about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Acts 14, 17 says he permits the nations to go their own way. God is not the author of sin. Hear me say this one more time. God is not the author of sin, but God is the author of a plan that includes sin. And it is for his greater glory. We would know nothing of his grace and his mercy if there was no sin. We would know nothing of his wrath and really his omnipotence, except there be sin in the world. And God has chosen his plan 
that includes sin and evil as a part of his master plan because it will bring greater glory to himself to defeat the devil, to lavish and shower grace upon sinners. If there was no sin, there would be no display of his grace. If there was no sin, there would be no display of his mercy and his love. And if there was no sin, there would have been no cross. There would have been no resurrection. And so for reasons known only to God in his brilliant wisdom, which far exceeds our ability to completely understand, God has allowed sin and evil in the world. And yet, the third thing you need to know, he causes many things, he allows some things, but he controls all things. He sets the boundaries to which sin and evil can go, and it can go no further. God said to the devil concerning Job, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. He, is, he fears me. He's upright. He's blameless. And God set the terms. He set the boundaries to which the, the adversity and even the evil that was inflicted upon Job, it was in reality at God's initiative. Yet God said, you may do this and you may do that, but you may not go any further. Jesus said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. I mean, Jesus could have stopped it. Just snap his fingers, a thought. But it was a part of the master plan that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. It had to happen. It was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And there will be greater glory in heaven when the Lamb upon His throne receives the adulation and the worship of us than if He had never come into this world, than if He had never died upon the cross then if we had never sinned, there's far greater glory. And God in His stunning brilliance has wired His eternal decree and His active providence which brings about everything that was in that eternal decree. God has a book in heaven. And in that book is the record of everything that shall come to pass, everything. No man has ever looked into that book, and no one will ever know what is in that book except in the rearview mirror after something occurs. Then we may know what was in that book. No angel has ever looked into that book. No... No human has ever written in that book. There is only one author of that eternal decree, and that is God himself. And every moment of every day, he is moving history forward in the big scale and in the small scale 
of what is in that book. So what I want to do now is set before you just two headings. This will be easy to follow concerning the sovereignty of God. Roman numeral one is what it means, and Roman numeral two, why it matters. So let's start with what it means. And we have our Bibles open right now to Psalm 103 and verse 19. And and let's just look at some of these verses very carefully. It says, The Lord has has established His throne in the heavens. Lord here is Yahweh, Jehovah, the the self-existent one, the one who has no needs whatsoever, the one who is independent and autonomous of all of us, and yet we are dependent upon him for everything. He is self-existing within himself, and everything that he would need is found within himself. We bring nothing to God. He does not even need us for anything. God did not create us because he was lonely. He did not create us because he needed a relationship. He had a perfect relationship within the Trinity, within the Godhead. The Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father, and the Father loved the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the Father as as well. They had intimate fellowship and perfect relationship within the Trinity itself. The Lord, this self-existent one who has no holes in his holiness has established his throne. The word established here means to be made firm. It means to be fixed. It really carries the idea that it is anchored in heaven and it cannot be moved as though it would be displaced It is the focal point of all of heaven. It is the focal point of the entire universe, this throne. In the book of Revelation, when John is caught up into heaven, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John says as he's on the island of Patmos and receiving this extraordinary revelation of Jesus Christ, he saw a door opened in heaven. And he was suddenly caught up into heaven. It was an out-of-body experience. And he will be given a guided tour of, of heaven. And the very first thing that John sees in heaven that occupies his focus and dominates his gaze, it's not streets of gold. It's not gates of pearl. It's not who's there. It's not who's not there. It is not uh, to have his questions answered. In Revelation 4, verse 2, the very first thing that John sees is a throne standing and him who sat upon it. Everything in the entire universe finds its place in relationship to this throne. And when you read Revelation chapter 4, everything in that entire chapter revolves around the throne. There are those before the throne. There are those under the throne. There are those beside the throne. There is praise being given to the one upon the throne. And as that is expanded out, everything in the universe finds its, its place in relationship 
to this throne. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. The word heavens here means heights. It's in the plural, the heights of heights. Far above this world, far above all the that takes place here upon the earth. His throne is established in, in the heights of heaven and, and everything is under his throne. Nothing is even equal to his throne. Nothing is above his throne. Everything is, is under his throne and he is presiding over everything. And his sovereignty rules overall. The word sovereignty means supreme authority. It means royal power. It means dominion. It pictures his irresistible reign. There is only one sovereign in the entire universe, and that is God. There cannot be two sovereigns. There is not some cosmic tug of war going on between God and the devil, two superpowers of, of, of equal strength. That's laughable. There's only one sovereign, and he has all authority in heaven and earth. And his sovereignty, this verse says, rules. This is in the present tense. Every moment of every day he rules. He, he, he's never away from the throne. He, he is never asleep. He, he is never out of session. He is always in session upon this throne ruling. He's not just watching. He's not just observing, but he's governing and he's executing. He's answering. He's guiding everything to its appointed end. His sovereignty rules over, what's the last word? All. All. Over Satan, over demons, over godless rulers, over wicked judges, over the media, over Hollywood, over Wall Street, over every nation. In fact, he alone is the one who has established the lines, the borders of the nation's he is the one who has established the coastlines. It's all under his authority. Is this your understanding of God? You may have never really heard some of the things that I have said and have never had a chance to really even think it through. But I do want to say that any lesser view of what I just said falls woefully short of reality, and it becomes a fictitious imagination in someone's mind 
that doesn't align with this verse. As long as you're in Psalms, turn back to Psalm 93 and verse 1. It begins what we, there's a section in the book of Psalms called the enthronement Psalms. And the reoccurring phrase in these enthronement Psalms, and it will run through Psalm 99, is these three words, the Lord reigns. So in Psalm 93, verse 1, this psalm begins, the Lord reigns. What a simple statement. What an utterly profound statement. What um, a transcendent statement. Let me just tell you a couple things about those three words. Number one, the Lord reigns exclusively. He's the only one who reigns. There's not checks and balances in heaven. Like our form of government is set up where there's the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, and and no one branch has full authority and there's checks and balances. Heaven is not run by a democracy. Heaven is run by a theocracy. It's not run by majority vote. It is run by the will of one, and that is God. You, you can see it right there in your own Bible. He, he, he reigns exclusively. This doesn't say the Lord and man reign. It doesn't say that the Lord and Satan reign. It doesn't say Satan reigns. It doesn't say blind fate, good karma, bad karma. No. There's only one who reigns, and that is the Lord. Second, he reigns constantly. Please note the verb. He reigns. Not not he will reign at the end of the age, at the second coming, and then God will get actively involved and wrap everything up as everything right now is going just in random ways on down random trails and paths. No, no. Right now, the Lord is reigning just as much as he will at the time of the second coming At the time he creates new heavens and new earth, he is reigning right now. He's reigning actively. He he, he reigns. He he has assumed the reigns of history. He has assumed the reigns of, of heaven and earth, and he's reigning over all, and he's reigning irresistibly. No no one can thwart him. No one can check him. No one can stop him. No one can alter him. He is God. I mean, we're but, the nations are but specks of dust on the scales of heaven. The entire nations. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. There is no authority but God's authority. God and God alone is upon this throne. And he's reigning majestically, regally, royally. Notice he goes on to say in verse 1, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Ancient kings would have their thrones raised up high and they would be adorned with robes and crowns and 
scepters so that whenever anyone would enter into the the palace and into the, the throne room and be brought before the throne of the king, it would, he, would, he would present himself in such a way that he is towering above and he has, a, he has attired himself with that which befits a king. But this, this is unimaginable. Isaiah had but a glimpse of it in Isaiah chapter 6, and his, the, the train of his robe filled the temple. The greater the king, the, the greater the, the, the train of his robe. And when Isaiah looked into the throne room of heaven, there, the, his robe filled the entire throne room. There, there was no room for any other, any other ruler, no room for any other judge. It, it was, there's only God upon his throne. And he reigns powerfully. Notice Psalm 93 verse 1. The Lord has girded himself with strength. You see that? What that indicates is that his every decree, he has the power to bring it to pass. No one can thwart his right hand. No one can push back against God's omnipotence. Not only does he have all authority, but he has all power to execute the purposes of his will. And he reigns immutably. Also in verse 1, Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Everything is exactly where God has placed it. Everything is fixed. Everything is nailed down exactly the way that God desires it to be. And God reigns eternally. Verse 2, your throne is established from of old. God is not a, an upstart king. He has not just recently assumed the throne. He, he has not now just come into office. It's not the first 90 days of his presidency. No. Verse 2, your throne is established from of old. You say, for how long in the past has God been God? For how long has he been the sovereign upon his throne, and he says at the end of verse 2, you are from everlasting. God has been upon this throne from all eternity past. There's never been a time when God did not exist. This is a staggering statement. Verse 3, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods here represent the chaos of the nations, the foaming, storming, of the nations rising up against God. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. It, it is a voice of, of anarchy against God. It is a, a voice of, of, of treason, cosmic treason against God. It, it is a, a, a voice of rebellion 
against God, the, the unrest of the nations and, and of the peoples in, in their sin. At the end of verse 3, the floods lift up their pounding waves like the relentless pounding of the waves against the coastline. So the nations and the kings and the rulers of this world have, are, are pounding against God's moral order and God's eternal decree. Verse 4, more than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea. God is like the, the rocks on the coastline, and all the nations are like the angry waves that are pounding against the coastline, and every wave is shattered by this rock of God's sovereignty. It's not the rock that gives way to the waves. It is the waves that are dashed to pieces by the rock. And the rock is God. He concludes verse 4, The Lord on high is mighty. There's your Christian worldview. There's your understanding of history. There's your understanding of current events. There's your understanding of everything. In verse 5, your testimonies, which is a title for the Word of God. Your testimonies. It's, it's God speaking through His Word. In the churches where I've pastored, no one really ever claps in worship except one time. It's the same way here at Grace Community Church. It's on Sunday night when someone's baptized and they give their testimony. And I sit there on the front pew on Sunday nights and I hear those testimonies. There's something dynamic. There's something real to life about these testimonies. There, there, there is something triumphant and victorious about these testimonies. There's something that's just so elevated and transcendent about these testimonies. And after they give their testimonies, everyone just spontaneously claps. Well, think about this. Think about God's testimony. Think about God speaking reality. God speaking truth. That's what the Bible is. It's God's testimonies. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. And so right here, the psalmist, verse 5 says, your testimonies are fully confirmed. <laughs> they're, they're nailed down. They're nailed to the floor. They're un, unalterable. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will, will never pass away. The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of our God abides forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Your testimonies are, are fully confirmed. And what do the testimonies produce in the people of God? The next line, holiness befits your house. Fundamental principle 
of life is like produces like. And there's only one way to have holiness produced. And that is for the Holy Spirit to take the Holy Scripture and apply that to a person's life. That produces holiness. O Lord, the end of verse 5, forever more. This truth, the Lord reigns, the first three words here are so important. There is a staccato repetition of those three words that run through these next psalms, almost like a carpenter driving a nail into a board to just nail it and drive it into the mind of the worshiper who comes into the house of God. Look at Psalm 96, Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Our our message for the world is not smile, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If you're foreordained to go to hell. No, our message to the nations is your gods are dead idols. That which you worship, that which you trust in. Is nothing. The Lord reigns over this nation. The Lord reigns over China. The Lord reigns over Russia. The Lord reigns over the Ukraine. The Lord reigns over South South Africa. The Lord reigns over the insanity of Australia and, and New Zealand. The Lord reigns over the idiocracy of the United States. The moral insanity of this country, of Los Angeles. I'm watching people walking around today with, on sidewalks with masks on. I mean, you have neutered your brain. Or you would if you had one. The Lord reigns. And the Lord is allowing the nations to go their own way as they are being flushed down the toilet of history. Look at Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad that there is one upon the throne who has a a master plan, who is bringing all things together to pass together, who has established moral order and has revealed that in his law, the Ten Commandments, that he has put a a God consciousness within every person, that he has set eternity within their hearts. Let the islands and the nations rejoice in this. Look at Psalm 99, verse 1. Not only do we rejoice, but there should be the fear of God within us. God is large and in charge. Psalm 99, verse 1, the Lord reigns. There's our phrase again. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth 
shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the peoples. Verse 4, the strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Come to Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He doesn't need permission from you and me to do anything. He doesn't require permission. He gives permission. He's above it all. Every moment of every day, he does whatever he pleases. This is who God is. And really, any lesser view or understanding of God is idolatry and is blasphemous and is really a desecration of the knowledge, the true knowledge of God. Come to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6 is his omniscience that he knows everything. God's never learned anything. You do understand that. God's not looking down the tunnel of time to see who will choose to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And when God observes that, God then chooses them back. God has never looked down the tunnel of time and ever learned anything. God already knows everything because God has already foreordained everything. Verses 7 through 12 speak of his omniscience, excuse me, his omnipresence that there's nowhere to go to escape God, not in heaven, not on earth, not even in hell. God will be in hell inflicting the wrath upon those who are suffering eternal punishment. And then in verse 13, he talks about God's omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. And specifically, he talks about the child that is in the womb that has been conceived. And he says in verse 15, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. In secret here refers to the mother's womb. And skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Depths of the earth is a euphemism for the mother's womb where no human eye can see. God skillfully, like a master artist, has created each and every one of us. Some of us tall, some of us short, some of us white, some of us brown, some of us black. 
some of us smart, some of us less. <laughs> it's all by God's master plan. But notice the next verse, verse 16. Your eyes, referring to God's eyes, have seen my unformed substance and in your book. Here's this book, God's book of everything that will come to pass. In your book were all written. It was written with permanent ink by God, really chiseled, as it were, into a tablet of stone with a hammer of fire. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That's big God theology right there. That means your days are numbered by God before you were ever born. And God ordained the day of your birth. He, he could have had you born a thousand years ago. He could have had you born 4,000 years ago. He had you born by your two parents, where you were born, when you were born, as you have been born. And every single day, God has numbered. For some of us here tonight, that number will be a, a large number. For some of us here tonight, that number will be a short number. For some here tonight, perhaps one will die what would be for us prematurely in a car wreck or from cancer or from a gunshot wound. Others here tonight may live to be 90 or 100. It's all prescripted by God. It's all foreordained by God. We are humanly, we are responsible humanly to take care of ourselves, look both ways when we cross the street, eat properly, exercise, go to the doctor. But despite all of that, you cannot alter the number of days that you have to live upon this earth. That's how sovereign. God is. When my father died, my first thought was, today is the perfect day. Today is the day that God marked out from eternity past for my father to step out of time into eternity, to leave this earth and go to heaven. I cried, but I would not want to change that. Because God, who does all things well, predetermined that would be his day. The day of your birth is established. The day of your death is established. And every day in between. If you want a cross-reference, John Job 14.5 says that we will not exceed the number of months and the number of days that have been ordained by God.
Let me give you one more psalm verse. Turn back to Psalm 33. And because the book of Psalms was originally Israel's worship hymnal, if you will, the higher your theology, the higher will be your doxology. And so it only makes sense that in this book, which was to lead the nation, the people of God, in, into the worship of God, that there would be such an elevated, lofty, transcendent view of God that would be presented. So Psalm 33, this stanza, verses 6 through 12, really speaks of this sovereignty of God. Beginning in verse 6, by the word of the Lord, referring to his spoken word, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. This is an exercise of divine sovereignty. God didn't have to create anything. There was no external pressure placed upon God to do something against his will because there was nothing that existed outside of himself. Verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea together in a heap. He lays up the, the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. I mean, there's no discussion. There's nothing more to be said. God speaks, it happens. There's nothing that God speaks to come to pass in the moving forward of providence, but that it comes to pass. For he spoke and he was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Verse 10, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. There is no alteration of his plan. From one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, it's just the extension of this one eternal purpose and plan of God before time began. So, when we say the sovereignty of God, this is what we mean. I wish we had time to, I've got untold number of pages of notes here to to, dot, to back this up theologically and biblically. And the more we look at the other passages, the more concrete this becomes. We're not finding um, exceptions. We're only finding declarations of this truth. Now, the last thing I want to set before you is why it matters. Why, why, why does all this matter? I mean, we just looked at what it means. Why, why, why does this matter? That this should have such a dramatic effect upon your life right where you sit right now, everything that's going on in your life, this is a game changer. Let me just give you some words and we'll wrap this up. The number one word is humility. How could you possibly 
being arrogant, self-centered, self-focused, self-pitying, self-promoting person in light of this. There's no reason for anyone in this room to be proud about anything. The only thing you have is what God has chosen to give you. Let me say that again. The only thing that you have going for you is what God has chosen to give to you. The higher we see who God is, the more humble we should be. James Montgomery Boyce was a great preacher who went to be with the Lord in the year 2000. He pastored in downtown Philadelphia, one of the most historic churches in America, maybe the most historic church in the United States. And he spoke of the teeter-totter effect, children playing on the playground with a teeter-totter. And he made the point that when one end is up, the other end is down. Or when that end is up, then this other end is down, but you can never have both ends up at the same time. And then he made the point that when God is understood to be up, we will assume our rightful position of lowliness of mind before him. But if we ever lose sight of what we've talked about tonight, then we're going to be up. We're going to be strutting around like a peacock, just stuffed full of ourselves on an ego trip for no reason. Because our understanding of who God is is what you hear about on Christian television. Because your understanding of who God is is what you hear sometimes on Christian radio and some podcasts of men who have zero understanding of who God is. You're in a, a good place for your humility. You sit under sound doctrine and God-centered preaching in this church from the pulpit to the basement, to the gym, the family center. All you hear is God, 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 God. And that should have the effect of humbling us. We need to talk more about God and less about us. So first of all, humility. Has this humbled you? Are you being humbled by this? Do you comprehend who God is? Do you comprehend and understand what God is doing? Have you chosen to clothe yourself with humility? The second key word, why this matters, is the word maturity. When you come to understand the sovereignty of God, boys become men, girls become women, 
you grow up overnight and you live in an adult world as you understand the sovereignty of God. And if you do not understand the sovereignty of God, you will remain in immaturity. You'll remain in the spiritual nursery. We'll keep changing your diapers when you come to Bible study. But as you understand this truth, you, you, you grow out of childhood into adulthood because you now know the one who is running everything. And let me just give you a verse. We don't even have time to really look at it, but just you can write this down. 1 John 2, verses 13 and 14. John describes three levels of spiritual maturity. Every one of us in this room tonight that is a Christian that's born again, we find ourselves in one of three levels of spiritual maturity. He says in verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. Fathers refer to adult men and women who have grown up with wisdom and understanding and they conduct themselves in a mature way, fathers. And then he says, I'm writing to you young men. That that would be like at at the end of teenage years and in your 20s, it would be kind of like those to whom I speak tonight. Because you have overcome the evil one. I mean, you're in, you're in the battle. You're on the front lines. You're fighting the wars. You're giving a witness for Christ. You're defending the faith. And then he says, I have written to you children because you know the Father. Now, there's a progression here. Because you know the Father, that means your understanding of God is he's daddy. You don't really understand what he does for a living. You don't really understand all the work that he does. You just know when it's dinner time, Daddy has provided dinner. And you kind of play with him. That's the the infancy stage. God is Daddy. You grow out of that and you become young men, young women. You want your life to count. You want to get out of the nursery. You you want to get out of Awana. You you actually want your life to no longer be up in the stands. You want to be on the field, all in, with God, dynamic walk with the Lord. You're overcoming the evil one. you're You're in spiritual warfare. You're wrestling souls out of the kingdom of darkness to enter into the kingdom of light. But there is, and that's the infantry stage, but there is yet a higher level of spiritual maturity. And according to verse 13, and it's repeated in the next verse, verse 14, you know God who has been from the beginning. I mean, you have an understanding of the eternality and the sovereignty and the aseity of God. You, you have an understanding of the transcendence and the majesty and the, the, the glory of, of Almighty God in heaven. You're, you're no longer playing with your toys in the Christian life. You now 
have a far greater understanding of who God is. And you've grown up. And what grows you up is a deeper knowledge of God. What grows you up and matures you and develops you and builds up your spiritual muscles and puts you into the world to stand for Christ is God's no longer just my father. I now come to understand my father is running the entire universe. I I didn't understand that when I got saved. That my father is in essence in the palace of heaven and in the throne room, and he, he is controlling everything. It's almost as if one day you go to work with your dad and, and you thought he was just dad. And you find out he's running this company, this vast company, and, and he, he's so responsible and so uh, in charge of everything. That's what it is to get to the next level of spiritual growth and maturity. I'm going to give you one more point of application. I've got so much more. Stability. This truth prevents you from having emotional meltdowns. This truth prevents you from imploding with anxiety. This truth gives gives you the ability to not collapse with every difficulty in your life because you recognize God's overruling purposes in your life. And you learn to accept certain things rather than whine and complain to God there is a stability about your faith that you begin to think, what does God want me to learn through this trial? How is God using this to wean me off of myself and onto him? Well, I need to bring this to conclusion I so much more I'd like to walk us through. But let me conclude with one of the most famous years in European history, 1715. And it was in that year that the longest reigning king in the history of Europe, even to this day, died. He sat on the throne of France for 72 years. He assumed the throne at age four. His name is Louis XIV. And he self-identified himself as the great. And that's what he thought he was. The great. He made famous the statement, I am the state. I am the nation. Arrogant, pompous. His palace and his court was the most magnificent in all of Europe. 
but he died in 1715. And his funeral, which he planned, was equally spectacular. His body lay in state in a solid gold casket. And he had given orders that in the cathedral for his funeral that all the lights were to be cut out. And there would only be one light. And that was the candle on his casket that would represent he is the light. He is the great one. And presiding over the service was a preacher. His name was Jean-Baptiste Massillon. Thousands of people came to view this casket of Louis the Great. And so as this preacher stood to speak behind and over the coffin, he reached down and snuffed out the light. And he said, only God is great. That's the message of the verses we've looked at tonight. You're not great. I'm not great. No one is great. I'm not okay. You're not okay. Only God is great. And the message of these Psalms, the message of the Bible, the message of the sovereignty of God is that there is an all-wise, all-loving, all-purposeful God who is presiding over the affairs of your life. And he has your tomorrow already mapped out. He has next week, next month, next year, who you will marry when you will marry, where you'll live, what you'll do. Everything's already prescripted in your life. What you need to know is God. You just need to know this God. And as you grow to know God, he will make his plan known to you. You don't have to wring your hands in anxiety. You don't have to collapse whenever there's a turn in the road that swerves you to the side. You just need to know God, that God has everything under control. There's only one way to know this God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. You'll never know God except through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you have never believed upon Jesus Christ, I would urge you, I would plead with you to commit your life to Jesus Christ tonight. Not tomorrow, tonight. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners just like what you are. He was the eternal son of the living God who stepped out of heaven into this world. He entered through a virgin's womb. 
He was born just like you and me, except without sin. He got into the human race. He got into our skin. He's, been, he's faced every temptation, every challenge you will ever face the rest of your life, and he did so without sin. He went to the cross. He was lifted up to die, and the Father transferred all the sins of all the people who would ever believe upon him transferred that sin to Christ, and Jesus died in the place of sinners. He shed his blood. He made the only atonement for sin. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. They took him down from the cross. They buried him, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. He ascended back to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never called upon the name of the Lord, tonight is your night to do business with God. You're not in charge. You're not in charge of anything. You need to get on God's agenda. You need to get onto God's plan for your life. And that can begin tonight by committing your life to his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Your eternal destiny will hinge on one thing. Did you believe in Jesus Christ or did you die in unbelief? The answer to that will determine whether you go to heaven or whether you burn forever in hell. Tonight is a night of mercy and grace. If you would turn from yourself, your stinking ego, and turn to Jesus Christ, he would receive you, and he would forgive you, and he would clothe you with his righteousness. If you would but believe on him, he is ready to receive sinners tonight. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how we praise you that you have established your throne in the heavens and that your sovereignty reigns over all. Forgive us for our diminutive view of who you are, our limited, small view of who you are. Would you enlarge our understanding and our knowledge of the majesty and the awesomeness of who you are and transform our lives by this knowledge. In Jesus' name we pray.